a lot of times it is easy, especially when you are largely just competing, to only pay attention to what all of the strongest cards are. Now, a lot of what I am optimizing for is trying to figure out what players are going to be made happy by cards. And whenever I look at a card, if I can't figure out who it is going to make happy, what direction I can move it to try and have that card make somebody happy. You're listening to Carmen Handy on Humans of Magic. Welcome to Humans of Magic, the show that gets up deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 92 with Carmen Handy. Carmen is an associate game designer at Wizards of the Coast, Cube Queen, and esports caster. I interviewed Carmen way back in episode 39 of this podcast, and she's also featured in the Humans of Magic book. So it's a real pleasure to have her back on the show, this time talking about something a little different. See, Carmen has joined Wizards of the Coast, and we're getting into the nitty-gritty of game design and all the things that she's learned while working for the Mothership. And we're going to talk a lot about Streets of New Capanna. Namely, how Carmen was involved and instrumental in the design of this new set. She's got a lot of great stories to share, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation. Special thanks go out to Blake Rasmussen of Wizards of the Coast for arranging this interview, making it happen, and also for hooking me up with the preview cards for Streets of New Capenna last week. So Blake, if you're listening, thank you so much. A few quick words before we start. You can support Humans of Magic in the following ways. Listen to the backlog of podcasts. Humansofmagic.com is where you can find everything. We're also featured on StarCityGames.com. If you want to follow us on social media, we can be found at Humans of Magic on Twitter and the same name, Humans of Magic, on Instagram. Last but not least, if you want to support the show in an extra way, please visit Patreon.com slash Humans of Magic, where you can get access to an exclusive Discord and some other perks. The phenomenal music you hear in this episode and every episode of Humans of Magic is supplied by Kupla. That's spelled K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is an absolutely fantastic musician. He's a magic player, and you can find all of his music on all the streaming platforms, including Spotify and SoundCloud. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter as well, Kupla Sound, and uh, tell him Humans of Magic said hi. Carmen, how are you doing today? I can't complain too awful much, you know, uh, hopefully uh, making magic a little bit better every day. <laughs> That's got to be like a dream job, right? Is to be in something for so long as a player or someone who's a collector, player, influencer. And then, and then now you're like inside the factory and you, you, you see how things are made. I mean, does it, are, are you still as excited about magic as you were before joining Wizards of the Coast? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really been a big shift in a lot of ways, right? So 
whenever you work for the company, there are a lot of things that you just can't engage with in the same way as when you're on the outside. Like before this, myself and um, Rain, the person we played together a lot, uh, I was in the Rivals League. Uh, she was in the MPL. We were having a pretty good year overall, and it was a pretty hard time to to walk away from playing competitive magic, playing professionally. But it, it is very rewarding in ways that are different. And I, I do really enjoy the things that I get to do. Yeah. So just to set the stage, you're currently in Seattle and before you were on the East Coast. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was living in the greater Washington, D.C. area uh, for about a year and Roanoke, Virginia before that for a few years. And now I'm in the greater Seattle area. How long has it been for you in greater Seattle? I guess it coincides with you joining Wizards of the Coast as a designer, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been about a year and a half now, a, a little bit less, but something in that range. Nice. I'm just curious, are you currently at WOTC, but you're working from home a lot? Or is WOTC just allowing people to go to the office and, or it's a combination approach? It varies. Yeah, right now is kind of the uh, the mixed approach. Uh, I'm generally in the office pretty frequently. Um, I'm in. I'm one of the people who just ends up playtesting with physical cards the most frequently because that's the easiest way to do it. But I think the rest of the company is in the building like half the time. It, it's varied throughout the time that I've been there. Right, we know everything's kind of been up and down over the last year and a half. Are things generally pretty good in Seattle or Renton? Is Wizards in Renton? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Renton. Because it's been so long since we, since I've actually been to the States at all. So it's been, I guess, since COVID, pre-COVID times for me. So. Yeah, you were up in uh, Canada for a long time, right? I was in Canada for a long time, but I've been living in mainland China for the last 10 years. So um, it's, yeah, that's that's my situation. Perfect. I feel like right now is the, a really good time to talk to you because I, I think it would be weird to talk to somebody who's just in their job for any kind of job for like three months in because you're still like trying to figure out, figure things out. Now, I've heard from other people that it can take a long time to get good at being a game designer. But I mean, a year and a half is a good amount of time, right? Yeah, I mean, I like to think so, right? No one ever wants to think that they are bad at something in a derogatory sense. There are certainly things I can improve upon. And I mean, frankly, I don't want to get involved with a career where I hit my ceiling in a year and a half, you know? So saying I'm good at it is something where I'm sure there are things I am good at, but ideally I can still have a lot of room to grow in all, all the ways that I actually have to engage with the work. I'm excited to get into all of that. First thing I just want to ask you is give me the story of how you got the position. Like, you know, okay. because before, as you said, you're just NPR and player personality. Like, how did you how did you land this role? Like what's involved? I think people or at least I would <laughs> I'd be really curious to know. Yeah, sure. So a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity where one of the product architects with Wizards of the Coast reached out about creating one of the Brawl decks for Throne of Eldraine. And one of them, I think it was called Wild Bounty. I don't quite remember the name of the deck itself, but it was the one with Tulane. I was contracted to build that deck on behalf of the company to be released X amount of time later. It ended up being fairly successful, which is nice. And I was asked if I wanted to take the design test 
for Wizards of the Coast at the time. I did not want to because I had just landed a commentary role with a with a tournament organizer and commentary was something I was passionate about. I had worked at for a long time. It would have felt really bad to finally get in the door and have to walk away. Fast forward to the pandemic, which started back in 2020. And when they started doing the Spotlight Cube series on Magic Online. And I had the opportunity, or I was given the opportunity where someone said, hey, I know you kind of worked on all of these you worked on this other product. I know you engage with a decent amount of the cube community. I had worked on designing, helping design one of the cubes for, um, I think it was the first or second SCG con when they did the cube championship. Justin Parnell spearheaded that, but I was one of the play testers for it. And they said, if you have a custom cube, we would, we would love to get that in. And at the time I didn't actually have one. And since I had so much free time with the pandemic, I basically just sat in my room and made the proliferate cube from scratch, just drafting all eight seats and then playing the games against myself and tuned and refined it for about two months and turned it in. And from then basically got the sort of, you made this by yourself. Mm. Okay. Well, we really would like it if you would take this design test. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, then I, I guess the rest is history. I think that just shows that you were sort of like you were not angling for the job, but you did such a great thing in terms of output that people had to recognize what you did. Right. It's sort of like it's like the cliche, like you just always like, you know, if you want to get promoted into something like you just you should just try to do that already. I don't know what's the best way to say that, but it sounds like through the proliferate cube and just being having an eye for that sort of design you just basically showed others like you're that's what you're capable of right yeah in a lot of ways there there are a lot of things about it that are that were atypical of normal cube curation i guess right a lot of people whenever they build like a vintage cube they make it as powerful as possible but being able to i like to think i don't know all of the details naturally i wasn't in the conversations at the time at least on the inside I like to think curating to a specific power level as well as having a sort of themed experience like that ended up reflecting really well on my capabilities to be molded into a good designer, right? Like, it's not like I knew everything at the time. There are things where if I were to go back and do the proliferate cube for the first time, again, I would do it completely different because I've learned a lot in the time since then. And I certainly had a lot of help even then because I've I showed the list to uh, a couple of friends, you know, my roommate, Kathleen, she helped me with it a lot. Ryan Overturf looked over it a lot, um, helped me a little bit. And like, I am eternally grateful to them as well as the people who gave me those opportunities, right? Um, Max McCall, I believe was the product architect that reached out about the Eldrain deck. Ali Steele was the person who reached out about the, the proliferate cube. Like none of this happened in a vacuum in a lot of ways. I'm just very, very lucky to know the people that I do. So this is really interesting for me because if I think about the, I don't even want to use the word stereotypical, but like the conventional spike, spiky sort of competitive player that I think, I mean, I think you're capable of that too. Like you're, you're very much like if you, when you set out to do well in the MPL, you did well and you're definitely a high level player, but I don't think a lot of just high level competitive players or deck builders even 
can flex in that way, like creating a cube or maybe like the inner workings of magic? Is is it just, or am I just wrong? Like are all ex-competitive players who work at WotC, do they all have that that muscle, you think? I think there are a lot of different kinds of muscle, right? So, or a lot of muscles involved, I should say, that go into game design. So I'm by no means an expert, but there are a lot of different things that go into being good at the job. Um, like I'm not, like rate is something that we have to talk about a lot in making sure that we don't make cards too strong or too weak. And I don't think I'm the strongest person on the team at that, for example, but I generally am pretty strong at say raw card creation, where if someone's like, Hey, we need a card that is X, Y, and Z and is a legendary vampire what have you just to piggyback on recent themes, I can go, okay, well, you know, give me, give me five minutes and some scratch paper and I'll try and have something for you. But other people might be better at saying, ah, I think that's a little too strong for a removal spell where I would kind of just go, yep, that is a removal spell. (laughs) So I I don't know. It's really tough. I I think different kinds of players are strong at different things. So you're saying that maybe some, some folks like yourself might be better at just like conceptualizing something from from zero to one and then other people might be better at like what what's the word like iterating on on a design yeah 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 yeah. that's a lot of it so something we'll frequently talk about whenever we make a card stronger or weaker the way we will do it is by turning knobs or we call it turning knobs right if you add a toughness to something you turn the knob up if you take a toughness away you turn it down i'm generally better at installing knobs or creating knobs than I am at knowing which direction to turn knobs. And that's not always true, right? I I am good enough at what I do to get the job. But if I were to talk about my strengths as a game designer, I don't think the first thing I would list was knob turning, so to speak. Yeah. Establishing the knobs, I think is, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So how easy, hard, impossible, possible was the great designer test like i i've never taken it but i've just heard i've seen like snippets of it where like rosewater will show one of the questions i i don't actually know if it's like publicly available is it just like a is it like a certified entrance exam or something like how what was um, the experience like for you so it varies um i i believe there are a couple of stages to it and i don't think i can get too granular but i can say the one that i did i typed about 8,000 words for over the course of four or five days. And to give other people a sense of scale, the the articles I used to publicly put out were about 1,500 to 2,000 words. So it was about six or seven articles worth of dialogue. They're, they're, They're pretty, pretty, there's a lot on them. They're trying to test for a lot of different things, right? The job is hard and it's pretty hard to also figure out that people have all the requisite skills to do it. Yeah. After you took it, they took some time and they they graded it and you passed and uh, you got the offer. Is that is that what happened or? Yeah. From, so I took the test and then I had to have a few different interviews uh, with different departments, basically to make sure that I am able to effectively communicate with other people. A lot of our job is basically saying, being able to interface with set leads, with other play designers, with our team leads, and making sure that you actually can 
you know, you don't have to be perfect in the interview stage, but making sure that you are actually capable of holding a conversation without just being somewhat derogatory if you're trying to give some more harsh feedback and so on. So that was the next thing that came up. And then about a week after the interview phase was when I got an offer. That was in, I want to say November of 2020. And my start date was in January of 21. Okay. So if you go back to that hiring process, obviously you had to have hard skills, like uh, I guess doing the test and you know your portfolio in the past speaks for itself, but the, the soft skills sounds like it's also something important. Like you said, hold a conversation and did they try to test you on how well you work within a team or like your ability to communicate? I, I assume it's like a combination of these things, right? Maybe more. Yeah, basically there's a point where they want to make sure that you are able to actually operate within the systems they're going to be putting you within, right? Like there's certainly a point where they want to make sure that when they're hiring somebody, they get somebody who can work within a team. But I mean, my feeling is that means they want to have somebody they can set up for success. So making sure that somebody can actually operate within those sorts of systems is pretty big. Great. Your official title is associate game designers. I guess we can also say cube designer because you've been involved in so <laughs> many, um, so many well-loved cubes on Magic Online and other places. Like for someone who has never met you, like how, how, do, how would you describe what you do just in these uh, roles? Sure. So it varies a lot um, naturally, but to kind of break things down a little bit, my associate game designer role, I'm specifically on play design at Wizards of the Coast. A lot of what we do is actually make sure that we are maximizing cards to be as fun as they can be. A lot of what our area, our department does is not necessarily in the raw card creation space. It is much more where someone gives us play and then we mold it is how I all frequently think of it, where someone will give us a mostly fleshed out set and then it's on us to kind of figure out, all right, what are the fun parts? Let's make sure the fun parts are actually going to be good enough in standard and if some parts are less fun, then maybe we want to make sure that those aren't the most overpowered things to be doing in the environment, right? I specifically tend to work on some other supplementary stuff within the building. Cube sort of falls under a similar umbrella there, right? I specifically have done a lot of work in eternal formats, which shows with Vintage Cube, for example, where... A lot of what I do is not entirely standard focused. Um, I think the most public thing, for example, is Unfinity I actually did work on. That, that was the first team I was on. That's the next on set that is coming out at some point. <laughs> but that's been a lot of fun. What's it, what's it actually like to work on an unset? Because it's so... It feels so different, at least for a player, to have these cards as opposed to something that's like properly balanced. But I assume there's still like guardrails and guidelines and all of that with an unset. So I'm really curious about that. Yeah, it's pretty berserk. A lot of it is you basically wanting to make sure that things are balanced within uh, what I'll call the biodome that's within the set itself. Because a lot of times with unsets, the cards are kind of just played against each other because 
they generally aren't really legal anywhere, right? I mean, maybe you rule zero it in Commander, so we want to make sure we don't make anything preposterous. But for the most part, these are going to be played out of the box, maybe people making sealed decks to play against each other. And a lot of what you're doing there is kind of trying to figure out the fun stuff magic cards can almost do, but can't quite do, if that makes sense. You know, one of the ones I can think of is things that are unblockable if someone is chewing gum, for example. That's (laughs) something where like you and I understand what that means, but you probably can't have it at competitive play. And it's really hard to put onto something like magic online because how the hell do you tell if somebody is chewing gum? But it is something that's fun and it's fun to kind of go, oh, what if a card did that, you know, and it gets a chuckle when you play with it. And I, and I think the unsets are also really cool in that they have actually pioneered competitive legal mechanics, right? I don't know what's the most, just one that comes to mind is the die rolling. Like, I guess it started with an unset, but now it's mm-hmm. actually part of the regular lexicon or I don't, I don't know what canon or however you want to describe it. So right, it's, it's really right, interesting right. <laughs> to have that traverse like between the different different kinds of legalities too. So Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff, right? There's stuff where you kind of think, oh, there's no way that would ever work in regular magic. And then some of it does. You know, rolling a die is one that is something that ended up working because of the uh, AFR. But then you even have stuff like the cheese stands alone was in unglued originally, but then you had Baron Glory. And I think it was Future Sight. It might have been Planar Chaos, but it was just the same card where people kind of went, hey, we think this is almost doable in regular magic and it would be fun to try. So come on, just give it to us. And that's a fun thing to do. The other thing that it's kind of linked to your qualifications or designer's qualifications is that I've, I've always felt that you have this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of magic cards and i'm just wondering is it, is it like are all designer is it like a requirement for all designers or will there be some designers where like you'll just mention cards like you know three cards in a sentence that I actually have to gather or scryfall every card because they don't know what it is is it is it like a whole gamut or are, is everybody like you and that like they just know all the cards no, uh, I I actually was surprised when I got in the building and knew more cards than most people. I expected other people to, I, I was kind of- I think that's your superpower. I was just like, yeah. oh, I thought everybody just knew all the cards. There was one, um, there was a meeting I was in shortly after I got hired with Patrick Sullivan. And he asked some question where um, he asked if there was a- something like the blue marrow in AFR. He was like, have we ever done something like that where it also lets you draw the cards? And I was like, oh, you mean like Saramaro first to dream out of saviors. And he just like <laughs> lost his mind. It was just like, how do you just have that? Yeah. And it was really, really funny. You have this like incredible, like computational engine in your head that like you can just look up every, every magic card so i so you've got to be in the top like top percentile of that of, of designers it sounds like yeah pro- i mean maybe it it is uh it's something where i'm glad that all the time i've spent sorting cards and reading old magic magazines ended up being worth something in my adult life you know <laughs> they need to create some sort of like magic trivial pursuit or magic jeopardy you probably I'm guessing like maybe people like you and Ross Miriam would do really well in those. Like you guys would probably create like a championship team, like just really obscure trivia. Like what was the flavor text on this common from like 
seven years ago that nobody played or I don't know what it is, but you, you have it. So. Oh yeah. I, I got, you mentioned the flavor text. I, I put it on, uh, on Twitter recently. One of the things I used to do in modern was whenever I saw whenever someone was taking too long for a player to think about something, I would just say a flavor text of a card that I thought was in their hand. And then based on how they reacted <laughs> would basically like, you know, if I'm just like, let's show boring clicks that progress doesn't always need teeth and claws. And then they look at their hand. It's like, Oh, they have a spell skite. That's crazy. You know, <laughs> that's how you can get, you can have your opponent's tells and is yeah. When, when they do a double take. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, has it gone to the point where you might be able to name some cards that maybe the person who designed the card doesn't even remember, but you actually know it. I, I don't know. Like I, that's a tough one. People usually know the cards they designed, but I imagine there are some of the, uh, the people who have just been doing this forever where they're just like, Oh yeah, I guess that was a draft common and hour of devastation. Why wouldn't it have been? <laughs> yeah. So you, you joined in, in January 2021, Wizards of the Coast. And how long, what was your learning curve like? And how long did you, before you felt kind of comfortable in the role? Maybe describe for me that, what, what it was like to get on board and all of that. Let's see. So I think I finally felt comfortable in the role pretty recently, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, there's some- one year later. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, so one of the things that, is sort of a a tongue-in-cheek everyone who's been there kind of knows um but isn't really talked about on the outside as much as you'll say uh something is in your black hole and those are cards that you never had the chance to change at all so you didn't really have a reason to learn all of them that super well but they also were not released yet when you got hired so my black hole includes uh, Caldheim, Strixhaven, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, and like half of Midnight Hunt. So you're saying these cards are already like, they were already off to the printers, like they were finalized. And then they just sat in this reality where you didn't have to to worry or care about them. Is that what you mean? Or Yeah, basically, generally when you're on the inside, you want to, whenever you're playtesting decks, you're incentivized to specifically be trying to solve for something, right? You want to figure out if some card in Neo Kamigawa is going to be messed up or if some card in Streets of New Kapena is going to be messed up or something could be more fun or less fun and so on. You aren't really incentivized to work on cards from Strixhaven because pencils down on that test. So as a result, you play, I had to play with them a little bit less. And I also hadn't gotten to play with them in the new world or in the real world very much. So that's sort of the, the designer black hole of cards. And we, it, it took a long time for those cards to not be in FFL. That's future, future league anymore. I don't want to give exact dates, but it was a while before those cards just didn't exist. And I didn't have to even think about any of them. And about that point, when we got to the 2023 year, is when I started to finally feel like I knew everything because it was just mid forward. So it wasn't necessarily like your skills or qualifications as a designer or your ability, but more just like things needed to 
things they needed to like phase out and phase in, like there needed to be enough time for the like the macro forces to be played out around you for you to feel more more comfortable. Something like in a that. way, right? Like I said, it's still I spent my first week or two at Wizard of the Coast basically just reading the next year and a half or two years of cards or something like that. Just where trying to absorb it, yeah. Right. Like most people get talk about dealing with um, I think it's spoiler fatigue is most of what the community calls it these days, where you're just like, oh, you know, I'm I'm always just getting bombarded by these new cards. But instead, imagine you had to look at four new sets in the same day or five new sets or whatever the number is. And you had to actually memorize as many of them as you could. Also the last three or four sets, the cards are changing. And that was really, really challenging to get up to speed on. And once you kind of get into the flow of things and the cards that you're not as incentivized to remember aren't, on your plate anymore, then things just sort of fall into place a little bit easier. And you're looking at the, the the cards, the new cards that are spoiled in front of you, like for the for one or two weeks, like, but you're looking at them with a designer's eye, right? It's not just like, oh, you know, this is really cool as a player, like this card is like is gonna be coming out, this is gonna really help my blah 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 deck, but it's more like you have to analyze the cards or in some capacity is that is that fair to say yeah yeah yeah. there's a lot of aware you are incentivized to find the things that need to be fixed about the set some like nothing is ever completely perfect and fixed i mean some things are as close to perfect as they can get but everything theoretically can be improved somewhere and it is my job to figure out where they can be improved yeah so I'm wondering if you can also talk a bit about the, the people side of things, because, you know, Wizards of the Coast is a corporate entity. There's different teams. You're part of a team of designers. You know, everybody has a manager. And like, what, what, what's that experience like for you? Because I, I assume it's also very different going from more of like an independent person into like working in a corporation. Yeah, so that one's been both difficult and easy at the same time where I'm generally just not that great at structured or rigidly structured work environments, right? So you kind of alluded to this already, but I've worked or I previously worked as a pro player slash independent contractor slash writer slash streamer, like all all of those things where you kind of operate on your own schedule, make your own hours and all that for over half a decade before coming to work for Wizards of the Coast. And it's been pretty jarring having to go back to a more corporate lifestyle, which if I'm being honest, I probably would not choose on my own, but it's not awful. Before I was a pro magic player, I spent about half a decade working in health insurance, which was significantly more soul sucking than designing magic cards. So in in some ways, it's a little obnoxious having to get back into the groove of working in a cubicle and everything that entails. But at the end of the day, the things that I'm doing are pretty fun and I really enjoy working with magic cards. So I don't think I can complain that much. It's not like life is bad. It's just different. And I'm kind of being whiny over having to put my big girl pants on, you know? Are there things that frustrate you or that you still find challenging today? 
what? There are some things where it is really hard to not just be able to walk away from things. That's something you have a lot of freedom to do whenever you're an independent contractor or whenever you just don't want to work with somebody anymore. You know, everyone on Twitter, for example, will just be like, look, if someone just makes the internet worse for you, just block them. But yep. Yep. In, a, in a more structured corporate environment, you have to work a lot harder at figuring out how to deal with situations that you might not be great at working in and so on. And that's been something that is somewhat challenging for me. Um, It's not life ending or anything like that, but it is a different mindset from working on the outside where if you just don't like somebody, then you can say heck them and move on. Yep. I think uh, sometimes it's like, you just don't have chemistry or, I mean, you said you don't like somebody or somebody doesn't like you. That's, that's part of it. But I think there's also degrees, like you just don't have chemistry with some people sometimes, but you know that you might have to work with them in a future capacity. So it's, it's sort of hard to burn your bridges. And so that I I found that to be also something that uh, I think it's very universal for a lot of people. So. Yeah, exactly. There are some folks where there's not even anything wrong with them. And I understand where they're coming from, but you, you kind of said this already on the chemistry bit. It's just, even if we don't work well together, sometimes that's just how the cards fall and we're going to have to work together. And it's at least half on me to figure out how to make that dynamic work. Yeah. My view is that for any job, if it's like 51% good, then it's probably worth it like i've never had any sort of role or job where it's it's perfect and i think if it is then you're just kind of fooling yourself in a way so as long as like at the end of the day you're like hey i'm here to design cards or i, I i'm doing something that i that i love doing 51 percent or more of the time then i think it's 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 all good right yeah exactly you know the check's clear i got food in my stomach a roof over my head like i any complaints i make are about working at the magic card factory you know? <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good problem to have before we go deeper into your your wizard's work do you miss your previous life in in yeah, some every ways day, all the time. Oh, oh really okay that was honest okay i was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, it's been really tough watching um some of the people i used to work with how do i put this it's not a jealousy thing but it, it is it is really rough to, you know, the, the last PT I played was where rain made the finals and uh, we were, while other people were playing their top four or top eight matches, rain and I were on arena play testing what their finals match was going to be with different sideboard configurations. And that was, I already knew I had the job. I knew it wasn't going to matter to me, but I just knew that I was going to miss it when I got inside and God, do I miss it. I miss it so much. Okay. So there's nothing inside Wizards that quite does it the same way, right? Because I know there's FFL and like there's competitive people playing and I'm sure people like play test and draft, but it's not, it's not the same, right? Right. I mean, there's a point where we're probably not going to find the number one best decks on the inside. And also for big tournaments, you're also kind of incentivized to metagame to a degree that we are, I won't say disincentivized to or disincentivized from on the inside, but 
we work with such low confidence intervals on what the actual strongest thing is going to be that it would be bad if we were to get as to metagame as hard as it is frequently correct to in tournament settings. So it, it is just competing on a different level. And you know, I mean, the incentives are just different, you know, and I like, I'm never going to care about a single match of FFL as much as I cared about uh, my own top eight of the grand finals in 2020, right? Like mm-hmm. or the, the winning in there, like nothing, no match I ever play with play test cards is ever going to yeah. give me that same peak as that did. Is that something that is that sentiment shared by a lot of your colleagues? Cause uh, many of them were also like, previously very high level players and then they they got inside the factory like do people just get more chill about that over time or like people still miss a lot of the competitive aspects and it doesn't go away i guess it depends on the person right yeah it definitely depends on the person it depends on what department you look at right um play design has a lot of people who used to be in more competitive circuits but that's not true of all of r&d a lot of people there are career game designers or they actually got in the door through other ways and that's just i don't want to speak for them explicitly but i imagine the the experience isn't an exact one-to-one you know mm-hmm. i mean i do remember when back when i was still living in canada or vancouver which is close to seattle over the years like i played in a number of seattle tournaments like at mox and uh even before that, I mean, I don't know what happened. Like, shout out to Merkwood. Like, there was a there was a place in Arlington, uh, Washington. I think it was Arlington. I don't know. I don't remember the city anymore. But it was like between <laughs> Seattle and Vancouver. They had they had all these like vintage and legacy tournaments. I remember these tournaments where they actually made them unsanctioned, so Wizards employees could come and play. And I remember like quite a number of them showed up over the years, and it was just like they were really good. Like, I was just, I mean, obviously it's naive now with all this information to. To assume that like, you know, Wizards employees or like ex-players are not good. But I remember like seeing, I don't think I should mention their names, but like I remember seeing some of them like just crush the tournaments and it was just like, okay, these guys know how to play Magic. So, and the fact that they came out to play suggests that they really do miss that competitive scene or at least the, the folks that I saw. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's also a degree where there's some formats it's just harder to engage with without it being for some amount of stakes, right? Like the further back into a turtle formats you go, it's so much harder to like today we can play things that don't break a certain price cap, but I don't think you're going to find people playing with their power nine that doesn't break that prize cap. So if you, if you want to engage with vintage, you basically can't. And and that can be that can be tough sometimes. That's not universally true, right? But yeah. it's hard to find vintage F and M, for example. Yeah, I also found it interesting that the vintage and legacy tournaments that I played in that area, where they did have Wizards employees show up, I always saw the Wizards employees playing with the most degenerate decks possible. It was really like, I wonder if it was like some sort of outlet where it's like, you know, I can't actually play dredge like in standard anymore. So I have to like do this in a tournament and they do really well with it too, but it's just like, 
it's crazy. Like they always seem to play like the most degenerate decks. Um, you know, whatever is like allowed, legally allowed, that's degenerate in that format. Like you'll see them playing it, which is kind of, um, which is kind of interesting too. But I don't, I don't know what point I'm making, but it's, uh, it, it just seems like an outlet for them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, eternal formats are nice. They're just generally the things that get the that you do the least of inside the building, right? A lot of times you're optimizing for standard or for limited or for commander or what have you and so getting a chance to play legacy you know i whenever i go to play fnm they'll do legacy and sometimes it fires and sometimes it doesn't but i always have a legacy deck in my bag because i hope that i can get to play with all these cool busted cards just because that's a cool and novel thing to do you know so different flavors it's not always the busted thing which i mean sometimes it is right i have hogak sleeved up on my desk over here but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's you know four color controller something like that is it true that hogak was originally just designed for commander and it somehow like found its way into these other places like modern and i don't know that one that's pretty far before my time but i would be surprised i think modern horizons one was largely optimized for oh, of course yeah for modern and anything else that it did was just gravy. Yeah. But I, I I guess that I am literally an official source, but don't take my word as gospel. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of expectations, Carmen, like what are what are some things that you properly expected before joining Wizards, which, uh, you know, lined up with your expectations? Um, I expected to, how do I put this? <laughs> I expected to have no idea what I was supposed to care about. And I was right in that regard. <laughs> okay. Something uh, in like, so my immediate manager, Dan Musser, he set up all these like one-on-one -on -one calls to get to know everybody on the team. At the time it was fully remote. They're just like 30 minutes, you know, shoot the breeze or what have you get to know each other, ask questions and so on. And every single person I asked them what on the team they thought they were the best at that was important. And a lot of it was stuff that I didn't even know mattered, which is great. That's what I was trying to get out of it because I, it's so hard to know what's going to be important. I went yeah. in understanding that the job wasn't just trying to find the best deck over and over. So I guess that's a more direct answer to your question. But so it's not like being a pro player, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. You're not going to find the job isn't figuring out if you're supposed to play two copies of Doomblade or three copies of Doomblade, right? It's about figuring out if the format is equipped to handle Doomblade. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So talking to people and hearing them say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm the best at figuring out or remembering what effects are going to rotate out of standard that we need to prioritize putting in the fifth set so they don't rotate out of standard it's like wow that is an important thing to pay attention to cool thanks yeah. for telling me that <laughs> you mean there isn't like an artificial intelligence machine or robot that can just like automatically remind everybody and send everybody an email that that mechanic is rotating out <laughs> i'm just kidding. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Okay, so that, that's what you expected was to expect the unexpected. Yeah, basically, I just went into went in expecting to know nothing. And, you know, that was great. And I expected to uh, not the job, not just be building the best deck all the time. And that's great. It's not. So 
in terms of your support network, like whether it's your manager or your peers or just other colleagues, like how do you how do you level up as a designer? Is it just like learn by doing, or is is there some sort of like plan to make Carmen like a better designer? I'm just wondering about that. So that's a really tough one, where different people ascend and plateau at different rates and specifically at different intervals where similar to the point earlier about different people having different strengths, there are different things that are just going to be harder for some people to grasp than others. There are also some things that you're just going to think are more important than other people. And that's part of what's great about the job and part of what is great about us having enough people to be able to check all these different bases. But I mean, speaking personally, a really big level up for me was basically just learning when to let things go. At the end of the day, I'm not the lead designer on any of the sets that I'm on. And sometimes all you can really do is bring up a concern or even not a concern, something that you think could be cooler or less powerful or what, whatever it is. All you can do is bring it up. And people might agree with you. People might disagree with you. But in the times that they disagree with you, if you've brought it up, you've done your job. That's fine. You don't actually have to get the change into every on every single card in every single file. It's only your job to make people aware of things and provide them information. And it's their job to interpret that information. It sounds like if I'm just inferring what you're saying, like, because I, I feel this a lot in and things I've done in the past too, is just like, sometimes you're really passionate about something, but maybe it's not, maybe the high EV play or move is to actually let it go because like, it's, I don't know how to say this without sounding negative, but it's like, it's like some people are just not as passionate about the things that you are passionate about. And you just, and sometimes you realize that you just can't, really allow yourself to die on that hill. Like you just, you just have to be able to think about like what is good for the team as cliched as that sounds. So I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, maybe I'm reading too much into what you're saying, but I, I have definitely felt this at, at certain points in my, in my career doing something different. So. Yeah. I, I mean, and I think you're, you're hitting a lot of good notes there. The one thing I think I would push back on is it being a lack of passion from someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times it's it might priorities, they don't right? see yeah. something in the same way is a lot of it where like, let's say I think X card is too strong with Y interaction and they just go, well, I think that interaction is appropriate for standard. Like it's not that they aren't passionate about standard or that they are more or less than me. Mm-hmm. It, they just see the card differently and odds are they're more experienced at it than I am. So Maybe I should just follow their lead and I've given them the feedback that I can and it's their job to do with that what they will, you know? I see. So you, you, you basically communicated your position and at the end of the day, that's all you can do is like, this is my point of view and, uh, you know, the final decision needs to be... Um, Cause I remember, I even remember talking with uh, Patrick Sullivan <laughs> in this podcast and he was saying in his past as a designer, not necessarily at wizards, but it was just like, sometimes he just has to say, look, I'm the, I'm the lead designer and we're, we're stalled on this like decision. And I think at the end of the day, we just have to go with this decision and that's, and that'll be that kind of thing. Yep. So yep. sometimes you just got to let stuff go pencils down and say, that's that. What are some things that you think you've leveled up 
other things you think you've leveled up quite well on like over the last uh, year, year and a half? Um, I think I've gotten a lot better at understanding the incentives that drive cards and the cards that are made. So a lot of times it is easy, especially when you are largely just competing to only pay attention to what all of the strongest cards are and then just kind of put everything else out of your head. Like who cares if this other card is strong in commander or is sweet in as a modern build around or whatever it is, that doesn't matter because all that's happening is a set championship in two weeks where it's alchemy and historic or whatever. So you just need to pay attention to the best alchemy and historic cards. Now, a lot of what I am optimizing for is trying to figure out what players are going to be made happy by cards. And whenever I look at a card, if I can't figure out who it is going to make happy, what direction I can move it to try and have that card make somebody happy. Mm. Generally, a lot of what I'm trying to do is Optimize for joy when opening a booster pack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think I've gotten a lot stronger at in the last six months or so. You know, I won't have any evidence of this for like a year or something, <laughs> but um, making sure that even commons and uncommons are things that can bring people a lot of joy is something that I've been working pretty hard on for the last six months or so. And how do you do that? Because is it just having a playbook to do that? Or is it just like getting feedback from others to do that? Or or some something else? Like Because it requires quite a bit of empathy to put yourself in another type of player's shoes, right? To a point, um, it's not just feedback. Sometimes it is you can just look at a card. I mean, I know this is a little reductive, but you look at a card and you go, wow, this is kind of only going to do something for limited and nobody's actually going to want Like no one's going to be happy to organically open this if they just bought a box and are cracking packs because they think cracking packs is fun, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But cards like Containment Construct, for example, out of Neo, um, if you're not familiar, it's the one that says whenever you discard a card, you can exile it and you can play it this turn. That's the card that has been making waves in Commander, a little bit in Legacy. People talked about it a ton and it's an uncommon, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big effect that looks kind of innocuous and it plays with a set theme but it happens to also just have a lot of hooks into older formats so finding things that do hook into commander as a build around or legacy as a build around those are the sorts of things where i want to find ways that those cards might be able to hack it in in constructed of some sort okay so you're talking about like maybe like different applications of the card right because that because that card to me kind of like um once upon a time it's just like it's designed to try to do something that is potentially broken i don't know if that's like maybe maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe this maybe. is just like maybe, maybe this just is my point of view and it, but it's just like you start, look at some designs and they're 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 more like pushing the the envelope and they're they're like because like it could either be like completely worthless or it could be like super amazing and broken but when i look at some of those cards anyways so yeah i mean that's a lot of the fun of it right and a, a lot and to be clear i did not work on containment construct this is just the first public facing example i could think of this is something where the thing that is really being emphasized here is the text box of the card rather than the body on it so that right. means it might not necessarily be as strong and limited where you know two mana two one is a pretty modest rate for a creature but if this were 
a four mana four, four or something like that. It might be a stronger limited card, but nobody's playing a four mana four, four in legacy. Yep. That's so right. that's something where pushing it down the curve, making it a little weaker in in limited is going to make it far more appealing in legacy or even modern or in commander. So it's figuring out what you want to optimize for and which players you want to try and make the happiness happiest when making these sorts of cards. And this might be a more clear cut example. Not all of them are that clear cut, but making sure that cards can be as fun and bring as much joy as you can make them. And Carmen, what are some things that you still feel like you need to work on as a designer? Are there any particular ones, things or qualities that come to mind? hard i mean i'm obviously trying to improve all the time i think i could certainly do better to <laughs> i am not the strongest limited player um i frequently i'm the person who is always trying to draft the like sideways archetypes to make sure they don't end up being too strong or what have you but that means that my traditional draft game let's say is a little bit weaker than other people's and that's something I wish I could get better at um I think I'm a bit I also think I am not always the best at letting some things go and have a pretty bad tendency to needle the same needle someone over the same point for weeks or what have you it's, <laughs> it's really hard right to kind of find the balance between yeah. bringing something up as a persistent issue and realizing you've been bringing something up as a persistent issue for five weeks and maybe it's time to go ahead and just drop it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really thin line between those two things where it's really obvious when you're on one side or the other sometimes, but in mm. the middle, it can get hazier. And I'm still trying to get better at finding the right side of that line. Mm -hmm. Are you just being modest when you say you're not a good limited player? Because I would, it's, is, is, is it just kind of like, you know, how like maybe a... Uh, a semi-professional basketball player says I'm not very good at basketball, but they can still like beat basically 99% of the population. I mean, it depends. Um, there are different things you're trying to optimize for when you're playing limited in the building where I think I am worse at identifying all of the set themes and building towards a set theme than some of the more general designers. And I think I am weaker at raw rate than a lot of play designers. And don't get me wrong. I'm better than some people at some things and that that's fine. But uh, it is one of the areas that I would most, I, I want to improve at the most that is pretty hard to improve at. Are there particular people at Wizards whom you feel like you've learned the most or just a lot from? Oh God. Um, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people. Um, Adam Prozac did a lot for me. Um, he was, he mentored me a bit, a bit when I first got hired, whenever play designers get hired, they have you work with a more senior designer just to kind of help you onboard a bit, maybe help you get better at operating within the building and all of that. Um, I also was on a set team with him that wrapped recently that he did a lot to help me learn how to operate at each different stage of being on a set team. And there are some other just some other spots where he was just very kind to me and helped me a lot. Um, I learned a lot about working on the play design team itself from Michael Hinderaker, 
he's just very good at operating within the play design team and is very good at a lot of the stuff that (laughs) I've alluded to wanting to improve on. You know, he's very good at making his point and leaving it. Mm. And he's very good at articulating his points. Brevity is something that's important in the building. And I know I'm rambling right now, which is ironic, but no, um, you're not, not at all. Brevity is very valuable whenever you're trying to communicate about a couple dozen cards in an hour and get changes made. Right. So being able to say, all right, I played with this card. I thought it was rough in this because it lines up against this deck like this, which means this happens. So we should change this. Yeah. Is a very condensed version of what ends up happening a lot of the time, but are all things that you need to communicate, which can be very hard. Mm -hmm. Those are the first two that come to mind, but it really, I mean, God, lots of different folks. It's really hard. Like Mm -hmm. everyone is, most people have helped in in some way or another. It's just, everyone is very interested in setting people up for success Mm -hmm. and it just makes everyone's lives easier. Right. If you, if you have a strong team, Mm -hmm. I mean, it also helps that we had a pretty good year last year. So everyone's going to be riding high whenever all of that's going on on the outside. There are some pressure points, but for the most part, I, I, I'm so grateful to the people that have taken the time to try and help me get to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I can relate to that. Like before we recorded the podcast, I was writing something up for my, um, for my classmates. Like I'm in, I'm in business school part-time and I wrote something, I sent it to them. And one of the, my classmates said, I read this, James is really good, but this is 900 words. Like, can you just shorten it next time? (laughs) So I have, I have the same issues with brevity all the time. And usually it's like you write something and you should just let it sit for a while because the next couple hours or next day, you can like probably cut it in half and it'll just be like the same message, but just more succinct. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I need to learn that as well. So. So let's, let's talk about day in the life. It sounds like every day is a little bit different for you as a designer, but are there any particular memorable days that you can maybe walk us through as a, you know, that was a good day or something like that? Yeah, sure. So maybe it's better to, God, it's hard. So days change a lot where my Monday is very different than my Thursday but all of my Mondays are pretty similar and all of my Tuesdays are pretty similar and all of my Wednesdays are pretty similar and so on. So maybe it's easier to walk it through a week. Mm-hmm. Um, generally I have one, I'm on one or two set teams at a time and will meet those. I will have two hour meetings with those like twice a week where we actually kind of actually interface with one another. And then we'll frequently do more independent, either write-ups or file passes or leave feedback or something to that effect. And then I will frequently draft for playtesting a couple of times a week. There's a decent amount of FFLing that goes on each week. A lot of the stuff that I do is kind of, is more in the independent studies space, cube curation is an example of one where I'll have to get something up and ready for Magic Online. And I just kind of am sitting at my desk going through certain things in order to get that ready, be it the changes I want to make to the cube, which are just actually 
you know, minus these cards, plus these cards, researching how that's actually going to impact certain archetypes working, and then having to pick the exact cards that go into the magic online packs and so on. And I think that's most of what I end up doing, but generally my day is 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. with an hour lunch break, mm-hmm. about two hour, two to four hours of meetings with maybe a two or three hour draft thrown in there. And then between three and six hours of individual time, which can either be spent FFLing, leaving feedback, doing cube work, et cetera. Nice. Okay. Sounds like really full days of like using your mind and like working on problems with other people. So yeah. Yeah. Generally, generally speaking, I mean, I, I like to think so. I think I uh, tend to basically just get at my computer and then hyper fixate on whatever is in front of me until I have to go until I'm expected to go meet with somebody (laughs) (laughs) and then just go do whatever it is we're doing together. Nice. Nice. Okay, so let, let's go to the part where I, I'd like you to share your stories about the things that you're allowed to talk about. In terms of design stories, can you talk about your first notepad to booster pack design, right? Just yeah, from, so yeah, uh, let's I'm talk about it. really excited about this one. This is one I, my first set team was the Streets of New Capenna team where I was not originally on it and coming up with three color cards is kind of hard because you want it to feel like it is in, in this case, it's a, it's a broker's card. So it is blue, white, and green. You want it to feel a little blue, a little white, and a little green. That's how you justify the mana cost. You want to make sure it feels all of that. Donald Smith actually was on the team and came into the play design chat and said, Hey, what's a, what's a three color spell what is <laughs> they don't have any ideas for this and um i said i so the the card my first card and i just shot this from the hip was um unending detour is that the name of it oh no i don't remember i remember it's play testing come on you gotta um, remember your first card <laughs> oh god i mean i know what it does that's the easy that's card. the most important yeah 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 it's um it's white, blue, green, instant, the owner of target spell, non-land permanent or card in a graveyard, puts it on the top or bottom of their library. Oh, and it's okay. an instant. Okay. And it's just like either gust slash reclaim. Mm-hmm. And since you can do it to your opponent, you probably don't want to lock them out. So they can put it on the top or bottom. Uh, Jules Robbins was the set lead. The top or bottom text is his. I had originally just wanted to put it on top and was trying to do the reclaim thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I just put that in the chat and then it made it into the file and it made it through FFL and now it's in packs. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about that one, actually. It's basically your, your concept. It was just like a slight tweak, but it's, it's, it's basically all there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there are some others where... So there's one called, sorry, I'm so bad with the names now. And you only you can just recite what they names. do, right? It's harder with Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Workshop Warchief is one where originally the Blitz mechanic, I hope it's called Blitz. Oh, no. Hold on. I'm going to try and check this really quick. What is the Blitz mechanic? And I'm, I'm not feigning my ignorance here. I don't know what that is. So Blitz is 
it's a it's a mechanic you put on creatures. It's if you cast this spell for its blitz cost, it gains haste. And when this creature dies, draw a card. But you have to sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So that was originally called Bash. And one of my other designs that made it into the set with different numbers, um, I called it Bash Tusk. And it is just a five mana, five, three trample. When it enters the battlefield, you gain three life. And when it dies, you get a four, four green rhino. And then it has bash for six mana. So it's a thrag tusk riff. And it, I feel, is a very different card because the numbers are different and the kinds of decks that you would put it in are different. It's now called Workshop Warchief. And that's something that is not exactly my design to booster pack, but um, it's pretty close. And a lot of the the things that I think are fun are things that are almost on on the right side of the uncanny valley of things that like, oh, I think I understand what that card does, but this is different enough where I'm pretty sure I would put it in different decks and it would actually play a lot differently. Because I think a lot of what players like to do and a lot of why players play stuff like modern is because they like to play with the cards they've played with. They have great memories with lots of their favorite cards. And I would like for players to get the chance to play with their favorite cards again, but I don't necessarily just want to reprint Thrag Tusk into standard. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, there's a, if I understand what you're saying, like there's a, there's an element of like, okay, I'm designing this card. What sort of audience is it for? So this is a card that's probably going to be more for, I don't, is this fair? Like competitive players, like, or maybe Timmy's as well, but like, but like these, this, this card is like objectively pretty powerful. Maybe not like, I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know if it's like a tier one, like, like staple in, in standard or something, but it's like, it has a good shot at it and it has like nostalgic mechanics or like flashbacks to something. So I I don't know how to. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm not entirely confident on where exactly it's going to land, but I think it has appeal for a lot of different kinds of players, right? It doesn't necessarily have to just be like cards don't have to just be appealing to one kind of player. They can try and check multiple boxes, but this does a little bit of life gain. It's a haste creature. It's also resilient. If you're doing mid rangey things, it, I mean, I, I'm not just trying to read the card to you, yeah. but um, I think there are a lot of things that can make it appealing and maybe it won't be. It's hard to say, but this is something that we put a decent amount of work into. And I was really happy to have something that was, kind of a riff on some like it, it's almost like a it's like the cherry coke to thrag tusks coca-cola you know <laughs> <laughs> i like that analogy uh yeah it's still coca-cola but but distinctly different yeah it's a, it's a little bit different it, you know maybe maybe have it at other times you know now, now for this uh cherry cola thrag tusk <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> is, is it uh cherry tusk is, is this um what was that whole process like did, was there like a committee that basically would be like oh i think the power toughness should be like shifted like this or there's like discussions about like you know the, do, do i gain three life or four life like the second ability because when i read some of the public articles that wizards has shared over the years i feel like that's a part of it so i'm sh- i'm not sure what your experience is like with this this one yeah, that's a lot of it. I think my numbers were 
originally closer to just actual thrag tusk. But one of the things that happens a lot in FFL is the numbers that change. The numbers, I know I talked about knobs a little bit before. Numbers are the easiest thing to knob, right? Because we understand how to make numbers bigger and smaller. So it is very easy for us how to make them. It is very easy for us to understand how to make them stronger and weaker. Mm-hmm. So this is something where it was generally more fun to, if you make a bigger token, maybe you blitz it more frequently. So that way you're incentivized to actually have it die because then it's better at blocking, for example. Or, But if it's better at blocking, maybe it should gain less life. So now it gains three life. And these are all just different iterations or different reasons that we ended up changing the card into what it is now. Got it. I am such a novice at this, but I think one of the things that really woke me up was when Ari Lax did some sort of retrospective write-up about Siege Rhino and how like just the thing being five toughness and four powers that are the other way around just made a huge impact to the environment and things like that. So the question here is, do you guys all intuitively know those sorts of things or, or do you guys have like some sort of process or... Yeah. Do you guys have some sort of process to like review things in the past and try to apply it to new designs? It is not always the level of what you're describing with Siege Rhino. What you're describing with Siege Rhino is something that we do much more frequently where it isn't necessarily a, re- a retrospective. What a, a lot of what Ari's points on Siege Rhino talked about are breakpoints. We're not dying to stoke the flames, for example, meant that Sea Rhino was at a breakpoint above other creatures, right? Because Corsair of Crufix died to stoke the flames. But I mean, most creatures do, right? Four damage is a lot of damage. But having those things that have more toughness than the most popular kill spells can deal damage right, or right. having creatures that don't die to Grasp of Darkness back when like Ishkana was really popular. And so it was strong. I mean, there were a lot of reasons it was strong in Delirium Mirrors, but one of the reasons was that Grasp of Darkness didn't kill it. Mm-hmm. Those are things that we use in our work a lot because we have an idea of what kill spells are the strongest, right? If we have, if we were to theoretically put grasp of darkness in a set we would want to make sure that we have some five toughness creatures for people to go to if grasp of darkness is in all the decks so people aren't just under grasp of darkness's thumb for all of time or if we put lightning strike in a set we want to make sure we have enough four toughness creatures and so on and so forth making sure that people have directions to go is something that we're very very proactive about yeah and that's always the thing with retrospectives too, is that of course hindsight is 2020. So it's like, yeah, you can look at how the entire environment shook out and be like, yeah, this was obviously a problem, but it's obviously a problem when you look back on it like years later or whatever, or when the set or the block phases out. But I'm guessing as a designer, you guys have to, you have just touched on like you guys have to make things fun. You have to like serve the needs of different types of players. So it's not. And there's just limited time to do everything. So I, I, I not not trying to um, rationalize things, but it's just like things all can always feel like slam dunks or mistakes after the fact, right? And when you're in it, it's just really, just really hard. I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so much harder to have the confidence necessary to actually know if something is going to land in the real world or not, right? So 
something that we thought was going to be really big in the real world was during uh, Kamigawa FFL or Neo Kamigawa FFL. That was right after I started. We thought Mono White Aggro was going to be the best deck. And lo and behold, it was one of the best decks. But our decks were built pretty differently. We thought Paladin Class was a stronger card than it turned out to be in the real world. And that changed how we ended up printing a lot of our answers. So if you look at the one, well, maybe the Wandering Emperor is not the best example, but that specifically hits a tapped creature, which is probably going to be true on a Planeswalker. So you can activate it at sorcery speed, but things that hit tapped creatures instead of attacking and blocking creatures because Paladin Class and Thalia together made it really hard to cast spells on your opponent's turn. So we ended up positioning a lot of removal to be able to be cast at sorcery speed. And that's the sort of thing that in some ways we were right. We were able to identify that Mono White was a very strong deck, but instead of being based around Paladin Class, the one in the real world is more is going a little bit bigger than that and was a bit more resilient and played the Wandering Emperor itself. I am curious about that. In the real world, the Mono White deck took on a different direction. Um, do you have any theories for why that is? No, I mean, we shouldn't be able to solve the format, right? We want to make sure that our game is interesting and engaging for millions of people. And it is pretty unlikely that that would be true if it could be solved in th- in like a couple of weeks by 10 Like people. in a very specific way or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we there might be some sort of mistake where we could catch on that we missed something. But for the most part, assuming that we are doing our jobs well, it should be very, very difficult for us to figure out what the actual best build of the best deck is. What are some other um, stories from working on SNC that you, you think would be uh, interesting to share? Oh God, it's so hard. This stuff is now so long ago that I. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so it's, it's so much in the future for us, but it's so long ago for you. That's that's the yeah, life yeah, of a designer, no, is, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we closed on this set such a long time ago. Um, Use your photographic memory and just like read the game text, and then something will will come up, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so there was a set meeting where and Andrew Brown, the FFL technical lead, was really wanting us to try and emphasize the kind of simple, cool stuff in three-color cards and not, not have things be as complicated as a set like Ikoria, for example. And Ikoria was not necessarily a true, quote-unquote, three-color set. It had some three-color themes, but that was not front and center in, in Streets of New Capenna, the three-color stuff is like that. It is a multi-color set. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to make sure we could have those simple resonant designs kind of in the vein of Siege Rhino where it doesn't need a bunch of lines of text to tell you that, yeah, that is a white and a black and a green card. I totally get it. Yeah. And one of the ones that Ken Nagel just came up with in a set meeting was the card Voidrend. So for anyone who hasn't gotten the chance to see this card yet, that is a U, a dub, or a W. So blue, white, black, three total mana, Esper colors, instant, can't be countered, destroy target, non-land permanent. Mm, it's, right. it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. It's three colors, and it can't be countered, so you know it's blue, and it's a <laughs> three mana, destroy target, non-land permanent card, which is pretty frequently white, black. Like, yeah. that is... Vindicated. That form, yeah. is... 
Right, exactly. It can't blow up land. That'd be too. That'd be a little too spicy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it is something where you look at it and you just go, "Wow, yeah, no, that is totally what that card would do." And uh, the way that he just like fired that one from the hip was so cool. He was just kind of saying, "Going, you know, I, I guess I'll just throw it out there." And then Andrew was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, Jules, put, put write that one down, write that one down." <laughs> and then it just it totally made it through FFL. It was really, really cool. Yeah. So there's some examples of like, just uh, from the hip designs, just find their way. Were there any cards that were like more challenging to find their way? Like went through like oh, a lot Lord. of discussions or okay. is that most of the cards? I don't yeah. Know. I mean, a lot of them really did. So the charms are a big one here where, so for anyone who is not more familiar, charms are generally cards that just have three different modes on them, whatever, the flavor of the set is, you know, in Ravnica, you had Is It Charm, which was a red and a blue for three red-blue effects. And in SNC, we have five charms, one for each of the factions, and they all have three different effects and cost three mana in our instance. And finding out how to position all of those modes and not have them overlap too much and not be dead all the time and not be too useful. Yeah. But be useful enough. I I swear I have spent I have spent more than 40 hours of my life talking about the charms in this set. And I, I think they landed on a really satisfying spot. Yeah. But I, I mean, obviously we still got to see it play out in the real world. That's super hard. I mean, just like, because I, I know what you mean, like, because all the charms I always feel are, are well designed, like they all seem to do something, which sounds like very trivial to say, but like, it's so hard to balance those three things into one card with like just moto cards in general, like the split cards too, I feel like are just like, I don't know how you guys do it. Like, it's just, it just seems really hard. So, yeah, I mean, some of it is more formulaic than one would expect but in other ways you still need the gameplay to be good right yeah. you can kind of use like some cheat sheets and like get yourself a little bit of the way there but if you really want to make sure you stick the landing you got to put so much effort in making sure you get all the numbers right some exact wordings are right like i there, there's just some really weird stuff that we tried out on some of them where cabaretti charm the naya colored one at one point was making two different kinds of tokens instead of just one or two of the same token like i i mean we really put a ton of work into those cards and i like i said i i, <laughs> I think we did it i hope we did it but it's really hard to tell if we did it until we see how it plays out in the real world now making two types of tokens was that design ultimately abandoned because like it just was too complex like i'm just wondering like what what was the rationale part of it um, but it also, it, it was just added strength, right? So right now, Cabaretti Charm is red, green, white. This is three mana instant. Choose one, card name deals damage equal to the number of creatures you control to target creature or planeswalker. Mm -hmm. So um, not overwhelm. Kabira Takedown is the most recent standard example. Uh, or creatures you control get plus one, plus one and gain trample until end of turn. Or create two one one green and white citizen creature tokens. So it's just raise the alarm, but it's a bunch of creature token specific stuff. And at one point, instead of making two of these one one tokens, it made a one one token and a one one devil token. And when the devil token died, it got to ping something. Right, right. And so that was something where you could 
it ended up being a little bit problematic that this card could just ambush a three toughness thing in combat. Got it. And just like double block and then you use the ping to get the third toughness down. That was something that we went back and forth on a lot because three mana for a raise the alarm is not really that strong, but also being able to ambush X3s in combat from no battlefield was probably a little bit much considering how good that card could be at just straight up winning the game with the anthem mode. And I, like I said, I, I've said it a million times. I think, I think we got it to a good spot, but it could just be that little bit extra as the make or break. How about just putting like the flavor stuff on top of the designs? That must be really hard too, right? Like, because you have these, fa- I don't know what they're called, factions or houses, and they have their identity. So it's not just like the colors, but also the theme or the what they're representing like or is that like okay because like that can be separated from designs because people can always come up with the name or the the type of the creature later kind of thing it varies from person to person actually i think some people are better at riffing and coming up with raw card designs from nothing and some people myself included are better if they're given a prompt right if someone just came up to me and were like hey make a magic card i would just be like uh (laughs) Uh, uh, but if or you come like, up, come hey, back with like a hundred of them, and it's like right. It's just like okay, well, I, I don't really know what you want, but I, I can try. And mm-hmm. but if someone goes, hey, make a, you know, whatever color legendary vampire, and it's this character that does this in the story, then I can go, okay, great. Now I just have to figure out how to represent this story moment on a magic card, and I can do that. I hope. I mean, most of the time, but. Uh, I'm much better at that form of design than I am at, hey, we need a card that costs blue, black, and green. Good luck. (laughs) We got to fill up the set with a blue, black, and green card. Uh, Carmen, go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just like, oh my God, what is the color blue all of a sudden? (laughs) Well, I haven't seen all the things in the set. I'm assuming the the like the color, the mana fixing must be really good because like it's basically like shards of Alara, where like everything is like multicolored, right? So, um, it's not quite so. Shards of Alara's mana fixing was certainly different. Um, or well, it had a lot of fixing. Uh, I think the fixing in this is a bit more toned down, at least in its implementation. Okay. It's really tough. Um, a lot of it tends to just be more about how two color things combine to make a third color faction. Mm. Um, we worked really hard to make sure that you felt like it was a three color set, but you weren't completely priced into doing the exact prescribed three color stuff. I mean, it's it's really complicated, but um, it's got a lot of stuff that you would expect to see. You got the big, cool, splashy three color commons. You got some, you got the Trilands. I know those are, have gotten all kinds of arts that just look really, really cool. You've got the kind of faction heads and some really cool stuff. Carmen, what is something from New Capenna that you're especially proud of? I know, I know you have mentioned like, you know, from the, your first design, things like that. Are there other things that come to mind as like maybe your proudest moment or moments? Um, let me think. I really like how Rafine turned out. So that is the head of the blue, white, black faction. And the card is one of those that took a lot of massaging to get to a satisfying place. 
So for anyone who's not familiar, this is Rafine Scheming Seer. This is one of the demon heads of a, of a faction. She's a Sphinx demon. I'm actually not sure Rafine is female, but uh, Rafine, uh, one for three mana, uh, flying ward one. Whenever you attack, target attacking creature connives X, where X is the number of attacking creature. And connive is draw X card, or in this case is draw X cards, then discard X cards, and put a plus one, plus one counter on that creature for each non-land card discarded that way. Mm-hmm. And this is something where it's kind of good at attacking, it's kind of good on defense, it's kind of resilient to removal, but you can kill it if you want to. Right. Um, making white, blue, black cards that are good at attacking is really hard, because generally when someone plays those cards, they're trying to play a more controly deck. Yeah. So finding something that talks people into attacking, I, I think, I hope that this did a good job of that, but there's a chance, you know, who knows? <laughs> hey, I think this is going to be a really sweet commander too. I think that's definitely a part of it. Yeah, it has a lot of hooks, right? It kind of, it lets you like loot a lot. It lets you do some stuff with plus one counters, which for anyone who likes to proliferate, <laughs> you know, it's going to be going in my queue. Yours truly, yeah. But... <laughs> Um, it has like some cool flavor behind it. It's got a bunch of colors, so you can put whatever cards you want in there. I, I think I think there's a lot you can do with this, and I'm really excited to see it in the real world. Are you proud of like maybe the the uh, you're proud of the final thing? But I mean, what about the like the process of making the card and like the teamwork elements of with other designers? Like, was there are, are you happy about those things as well? Yeah, for the most part, uh, I think that that FFL period was particularly good for me developmentally to know what it is like to receive a lot of the feedback and then actually take it to a meeting for the set itself. A lot of times you'll kind of deliver feedback, especially on limited, and then the set team goes and handles it. You're not necessarily there to try and advocate for your changes. It's, it's very much the, you wrote your feedback, you sent it to them, it's done. Mm-hmm. and it happens or it doesn't. So actually being there and trying to interpret feedback and see if something is maybe following a trend, how long something is going for and actually keeping track of everything at play was really, really nice. And it was pretty, it was really cool to get to see how the sausage is made, so to speak. Yeah. What about like uh, New Capenna? Like, are there any particularly proud teamwork moments that you've had? Like maybe working with somebody or... Uh, several people? So I really, really liked working with Jules. That's the set lead. Um, He also was the lead designer for um, AFR. So it was the Dungeons and Dragons set last year. Working with him was great because it helped me learn that there are multiple ways to be a designer. And he's like, God, he's so good. He, uh, He's so good at just being able to actually challenge the way that we normally do things in magic and like word something a little bit different to where it gets just a much more satisfying functionality. There's a lot of stuff in, in AFR, for example, where you might go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I guess that is slightly different than, than how we've worded that effect in the past, but I can see why that actually matters. And just stuff like, phasing creatures out as a protection spell is really cool because it helps you dodge rats and doesn't have all of the baggage that hexproof does, for example. So 
he's very quick to lean into that. He's just got a great mind for design. And we came up with a couple of cool sideways build arounds for, for the limited environment that, I don't know, it, it was particularly inspiring watching him really hammer at them and be like, okay, I've came up with these five ideas that can go in this one slot. And I kind of like the direction of the second one. The third one maybe could be massaged into something satisfying, but this is what I'm thinking. What do y'all think? And then I would send back three designs and Andrew Brown would send back two designs. And then Jules would be able to combine that into something that landed in a cool and satisfying space for just a green uncommon. You know, he's very, very quick to, to redesign things and really make sure that a slot is the most fun that it can be. Mm-hmm. And I really, really admire that. Mm-hmm. Do you personally want to be in the position of Jules in the future? I think that'd be cool. Um, I don't think I'm necessarily married to doing it for a main like standard set. You know what I mean? Um, if it were to be something supplemental, uh, I think I would be happy if I were in charge of some commander decks or if I were the lead design on something like Time Spiral Remastered or Modern Horizons or Double Masters or what have you. I, I think I would really enjoy that. I think the Double Masters stuff in particular is a space that I've already kind of done. Not not exactly, right? They're, the stuff they do is much more than what I'm about to reference, but a lot of what I do with Cube is kind of curating specific experiences from cards that already exist, right. which is a very different job than designing new cards. Yeah. So I, I think I would like something in that space, but I, I'm still so new at all of this that I'm still trying to figure out where I want to be in, you know, five years or what have you. Yeah. The next question is more general. How do you manage stress? Like you must, any, any role or any job you're going to come, you're going to have stress. And I imagine designing magic cards is not easy (laughs) based on everything you've told me so far today. And, uh, how, how do you, how do you, how do you manage to stay, you know, productive and manage your stress? So I think a lot of it for me is I take a lot of solace in the idea that things are going to turn out fine as long as I don't make anybody else's life harder. So a lot of the things that I have to deliver or that I have to work with involve deliverables, which are me just making sure that I meet deadlines on things, be it turning in my changes for the cube or turning in draft feedback or making sure that I get changes that I want for standard on the whiteboard or what have you, the virtual whiteboard. And for the most part, as long as I can do those things, it's going to be okay. You know, there have been a handful of mistakes that have gotten through my department in the last couple of years and it was fine right? The lights stayed on. No one got fired over anything. That's not to say that we don't have to, that like it always is great, right? But at the end of the day, things are fine. We learn from our mistakes. And I think it would be worse if the boundary wasn't getting pushed sometimes, because that would imply that we were playing too safe. 
And I think for the most part, people like to play with powerful cards more than they like to play with weak cards. Mm-hmm. And as long as things turn out okay, which I think they will, then most of what's happening is just details at the end of the day. Most yeah. problems are fixable in the long run as long as you send the right emails on time. That's a good perspective. Like, did you just just realize that one day or is it has it always been the way you approach things or was there some moment or moments that made you think in that way? I mean, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but after working in health insurance for a while, nothing is nothing I do in the building is ruining anybody's life or anything like that, right? Like no one is going into debt because they needed surgery or what have you. So if I, I don't want to say magic isn't important to me because I, I, I hope it is clear that it is very, very important to me, but any problems that stem with magic are kind of first world problems <laughs> a lot of the time for like a better phrase. And, you know, like if, uh, if the worst thing that happens in my week is I accidentally don't catch the next fires of invention, then, you know, worst case Pretty scenario, we have, yeah. we have to ban the next fires of invention. And mm-hmm. maybe that hurts a format or two for a few months, which again, I want to emphasize, I know is important. Yes. Yes. But it will be okay. Yeah. Everything has a time and place. And uh, I think your perspective is, is good for that. Good. What is something that you can you want to tell people that don't work at Wizards of the Coast, but, are, but can be critical of design or other aspects of magic? Hmm. That's a really tough one. It's really tough. I mean, there are lots of different things that you'd want to say to lots of different people for different reasons. Um, the biggest thing that I can say is, generally speaking, people in the building are trying to act in good faith and are trying to make cards that are exciting that people want to own. And I think a lot of people make a lot of jokes about stuff like, you know, fire design or whatever. And I think a lot of people think that that means the most powerful cards are the strongest ones, but in a lot of cases, it just means the weakest cards are stronger than they used to be, right? It's more, it is much more kind of what we talked about before about making sure every single card has somebody that wants it. I always say we should avoid designing more blood funnels, which is an old, not, I mean, it ended up having some applications, but in its time was not a particularly desirable card to open or something that you were very happy to get out of a pack. And generally I want people to be able to open packs and be like, oh, like worst case scenario, it's not for you, but you can kind of think like, oh, you know, well, if I were to try and build this deck or if I were in a draft or if I had this commander or what have you, you, you can think of where it would go. And I think that's the biggest thing I wish people were more aware of. I know some of the, the fire design jokes are tongue in cheek and I'm not trying to be overly sensitive to that sort of stuff. But I think a lot of people in just miss the point and aren't the most interested in knowing the point. And I wish that were a bit different. It's sort of a societal thing, right? Because I think a lot of people's magic brands, for lack of a better term, is predicated on them being very definitively 
strongly for or against something. And it's just very difficult to have this sort of in-between space. I think it goes back and forth. It's really hard, right? There are plenty of content creators that are supportive and successful, and there are plenty who have kind of found that niche that you're talking about that is more critical. And I don't know. I, I wish people could do that less on both sides. Like I, I wish people could be more even where, you know, if you're genuinely supportive, you can be critical at times and that's great. And if you're monocritical, maybe examine if you're even happy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> engaging, engaging with the stuff that you're engaging with, you know, like it, there's certainly a point where I, I want people to enjoy playing the game. At some point it's like, maybe someone I, I, never I'm not does, sure you like, should be involved with magic if you're so unhappy with magic i guess yeah i mean it's really tough right it's not just that but if someone isn't having fun like maybe examine how they could be having fun you know there are all kinds of different ways to engage with magic and i would guess that 90 percent of people could enjoy engaging with the game in some way or another and a lot of it kind of just comes down to finding the way that is healthy and fun for you to engage with it yes so something that I am happy about, Carmen, is that I had a chance to catch up with you today and, 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 and learn more about what you're doing. What is the best way for people to reach you on, on social or where you want to be reached? Um, I would say the best way to find me on the internet is through Twitter, and that's at E-M underscore T-E-E-G-E-E, M underscore T-G. My DMs are generally open, but I can't say I'll always respond to ugly stuff. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's a very common statement I got from most people I've interviewed recently, especially especially women. <laughs> so <laughs> oh. <laughs> let's not go too deep there. Um, uh huh. The one one thing I do I didn't have a chance to ask you is um, I do want to ask you about the you know going from Emma to Carmen. Like what what is the what is the story or the the canon behind that? Okay, sure. So um, it really, I, it, I think it's simple for the most part. Carmen is the name that I wanted to choose whenever I first transitioned. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, I am transgender and I originally wanted to go by Carmen, but w- when you first transition, you're frequently so desperate for people to take your identity seriously that you just do whatever you think the most palatable thing will be. Um, to appease as many people who you might even never meet as possible. And the year I transitioned, Emma was just the most common baby girl name. And I was just desperate enough to have people accept my identity or treat it as valid that I was just like, well, this is the most well-liked girl name. So I sure hope people like it. And uh, about, you know, some point, last year, I was just like, you know, I've been wishing I didn't do that for like years now. And I'm in a position where I can just change that and it'll be fine. So I decided to rip the bandaid off and we're here now. That's awesome. I'm very happy for you, Carmen. And uh, Carmen's a great name. And uh, I don't have have anything to say other than uh, you're happier. (laughs) And I love the name. And that's all I can say and all that I will say. So thanks, James. That's really kind of you. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Carmen. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Sounds great. Talk to you soon.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.